Hey there, welcome to Motorcycles and Misfits here at not the Recycle Garage in sunny Santa Cruz, but it got a little better. We are at AMA Vintage Days in wonderful mid-Ohio. Yeah. Yes, where you get to be in a kid and an adult <laughs> all at the same time for four days straight. Well, we do anyway. Exactly. Hey everyone, this is Liza, and yeah, we are here at Vintage Days. This is our big event that we talk about, Noko Moto, Cleveland Moto, we all talk about. We can't wait to get here. Yeah. We're still at the beginning of the weekend. <sighs> last night, I made the comment at the, burn, at the burnout con competition, which uh, last night, I don't know what time it was, probably midnight, and what did we see do burnouts? It was an XR100 that did a burnout for about three minutes straight. People yeah. were lighting their cigarettes off the manifold. Was, pipes. I think he chugged a couple of beers in the process. Then I think it was the H3 mini bike with the drag bar got yeah. on. It did the burnout. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever, talking to Wendy and her, 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 her husband. And I said, wait a minute. It hasn't even started yet. No. So let's talk. Well, that would, of course, be the dulcet tones of Naked Jim. Uh, yes. Yeah. Ha happy to be here. <laughs> and I just want to say shout out to Phil and Cleveland Moto, the best hosts on yes. the planet. And of course, running sound, we got Bagel. Hello. Greetings. Greetings, everybody. Yeah, exactly. So, this is just the beginning of the weekend. It just officially started today, but for us, it started yesterday. And more and more people, it filled up with all the people coming early, racers, vendors, and stuff. But it was a full, like a full event. It yesterday. felt like it was like already, already going full bore. And then, but the people kept pie and bikes. I've never seen so many motorcycles in one place in my whole life. No, and that's the thing. It's a celebration of, of the weird. Yeah. Um, but you will see the most Trail 70s in your life yeah. here. I've right? seen the most three-wheeled two-stroke vehicles that I've never seen in my life before here, like last night. And Bagel, how's the scooter representation? Uh, there, there's a good number of scooters around here. Um, not, you know, a lot of smaller bikes, but uh, but yeah, there's there's a few around. I'm happy to say I just did three parade I, laps on a scooter. Yeah, I've seen I've seen several Vespas in the swap meet area for sale. Vespas or Stellas. Well, we'll get to that. I mean, right off the bat, uh, once we get the camp set up a bit, uh, Jim and Stumpy John and I headed off on the just scooters that around. I think I was on a 49cc Vespa. And went off into the woods to the hair scramble <laughs> trails. Immediately, you were a bit you were a bit hesitant at first as I descended down into the woods. I've done this so many times; I know how it works. So as we're descending into the hair scramble course in the woods on these I little scooters, <laughs> all I know is, is they're Phil's bikes. I'm like, this is not my bike. I really need to be careful with this. You know, I'm respectful, but I know I know. Liza's like, come on, let's go. And me and John are like, I don't know, but I know how this ends. Is we always end up going. And over hill and dale and creek and stump, we did. <laughs> and again, the, the event hasn't even started yet. <laughs> no. So right off the bat, we're having fun. Bagel, you haven't been out there yet. No, not yet. we got to show you. Yeah. It's more fun on a scooter. A small bike. Well, it is. Here's what I'll say. I think everything here is more fun on a small bike. That is that is true. The swap main is as big as ever. There are lots of vendors here. We've got our friend uh, Wendy Crockett. Yeah. Is, is joined us and she's here with the Vintage Rides booth. I'm going to talk to her later. Um, Mark from Mimi and Moto mm -hmm. is here. Make sure you stop and say hi. Yeah. Um, making new friends. Icon is here. Yeah. We got listeners. Uh, plenty of listeners coming by and our camp has gotten so big. Oh, it's yeah. the size of a football field. <laughs> <laughs> At least. <laughs> it's a neighborhood. Yeah. And we're going to have our own gang shortly. 
It is, but it's more like a, like a reunion now. Yeah. Where we're seeing people we've met before totally. and people we haven't met. I just, I just met a guy named Charles. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about Charles. Well, I'm going to interview him later because he was lined up to do the parade lap, which is not a race, but I did win. We'll get to that. <laughs> and Charles was riding a NS125 kind of dirt bike mm-hmm. with one arm. Oh, wow. And all the controls on one hand. He was operating the throttle, brake, and clutch are all on the right side. He even wow. cut the left handlebar off. Well, and I, I saw it and he had his, his, his arm is in a sling. sling. It's a full arm, but he was in an accident, oh. got nerve damage, and his paralyzed arm. I got it. And I asked him, how long have you been riding like this? He goes, two weeks. What? Wow. And he's getting on the track. You're kidding me. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, you just there's the most amazing, fascinating people here, but everyone... So here they just want to have fun yeah. and it's light and fun and incredibly family oriented yeah so we're going to be going around and finding a lot of these fun people and stories and doing some interviews um tomorrow we're doing a live podcast in the infield with nokomoto and cleveland moto so look for that um and uh, yeah so just say so jim and i just came off of the parade lap jim was that your first time on a full-size track no, no, you've done Laguna Seca. Yeah, I've done Laguna Seca. Uh, how was this? This was, describe, right, how many bikes was there? Like 100? Easily 100. I would say 100 to 100. 150 would be my guess. And from large touring bikes? Well, in the rider meeting, the guy summed it up, or it got summed up, I'll say. He goes, hey, I mean, we're out here, have a good time. Uh, we got everything from 1,200cc bikes to, you know, 125cc bikes. Guy next to me goes, and 50. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw a, a Raz scooter next to me. How big are those, Bagel? Those are fifties. I'm like, that's the guy I don't want to have, be passed by. <laughs> like, do not. not but, but again, this is why the small bikes are fun here because if you're on, you know, if you're on, if I'm on my Suzuki here, I, you know, I'm not going to go more than fifty miles an hour, you know, something like that, and. Um, and it's, so it's going to feel slow, but on a little bike, doing 55 through the turns feels really fun. Oh, yeah. So, again, the little bikes are great. I got up to 69. Really? Yes. Wow. Go, yes. Benelli, go. 69 in that back straightaway. It was a bit scary. Wow. But it felt yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and so we're going around. Now, I would say it's not a race, but, um, but I do have my own race going on. Most people don't know. In fact... It, it makes it even better because it makes kind of traffic that you have to pass, right? Which you can do on the little bike. So my rule is, and they have a riders meeting, and they always have a, a VP. We were riding with Hall of Famer Steve Wise. Yeah. Okay. So he's riding on a lead bike, and you've got a camera car in front of him. Then behind him is a guy in a vest, and he's like the control rider. You're not allowed to pass the control rider. So, but my, so my race is to get to the front of the pack and be the first rider behind the control rider. Mm-hmm. And I warned him ahead of time, like, just so you know, if you have some asshole riding your tail, that's me. That's so Liza. <laughs> just so you know, I appreciate the rules. I'm going to break them right off the gate. <laughs> I didn't know. I said, I'm not breaking the rules. I'm not going to pass you. Mm-hmm. But I will get as close to you as I can. <laughs> and he's like, fair enough. He's like, whatever. Fair enough. You and about so 10 other people. <laughs> we're going around three laps, and I'm fiercely making my way up towards the front, you know. And then, and then about lap two, 
come up another guy on a green Benelli's next to me. We're like, thumbs up, mm-hmm. game on, yeah. right? So now we're jockeying. <laughs> and we're working our way towards the front. And I get myself up to that front lead rider, right? The control rider. And here's a guy on a dirt bike who passes him and then catches up to Steve Wise and is riding next to him. There's always one. There's always one. There's always one. And I'm like, ugh. There's the guy. There's the idiot. But he's disqualified because he passed the controlled rider. We're on the last lap. We're coming up to the checker line. I got a guy on a big touring bike comes up past me. I can't. I don't have speed. He goes up alongside the control rider. And as we're passing the checkered line, he just inches in front of him. And I am the next rider behind the controlled bike. So his violation of the controlled bike space allowed you to... I won. By my own definition of not breaking any rules. Considering this is a competition of one, I think, <laughs> I think you can make up whatever rules you want. In a field of 150. I know. But it is your third in a row, so congratulations I have on run triple three crown. Times in a row. But, but you were saying before you went out, we're going to hang in the back and not... not I started in the back. No, I start in the back oh, and work my way to the I front. I see. If you start in the front, what's the fun in that? Yeah. Mm-mm. I started in the back. <laughs> but by the time we were on the actual grid, I worked my way up to halfway. So I just... It's a hoot. It, it's great. It, it was fun. So it's that's great. an example of the kind of fun we're having here. Well, and even just coming here for the ride, it's like you go through all these vendor places. You know, I'm looking at the wall of death out the window now. You got Triumph rides. You got... Uh, Royal Enfield rides. You got a bunch of representation from other, you know, kind of other gear manufacturers. I mean, everywhere you look, there's motorcycle stuff. Not to mention motorcycles, literally, and mini bikes flying every which way. And scooters. Yeah, yeah. And oh, tons of scooters. Speaking of which, should we take Bagel on the off-road course? I think. Well, if there, if the hair oh, scramble going racing. on, yeah, I think the maybe hair we should wait happening. till the race is done. We'll yeah, wait till night time. We'll wait for dark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Take a Buddy 50 out there? Yes. Yeah. All you need is a Buddy 50 and a Gimp mask. You're good to go. <laughs> we have all of those things. <laughs> Imagine that. And here's the other crazy thing. We always talk about this. This is where bad ideas come to fruition. <laughs> but, and expand. Yes. But rarely do people get injured, which is weird. Oh. Well. Speaking of bad ideas, <laughs> my, my oh, sidecar yes. rig. Yeah, that was interesting. You don't know if you don't try. So here's the thing. I, I found this company that makes sidecars, and they said that they could custom make a mount to put it onto my little Benelli 135, sent it off to Virginia, had it put on it. It looks kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But right off the bat, there were some problems, one being that Phil said, this is the number one most dangerous bike I've ever ridden in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, come and on, Phil's Phil. ridden a lot of dangerous bikes. <clears throat> You've ridden a lot. Come on, Phil. Yeah, and he's well-versed in sidecars. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, like, how bad can it be? So I got on the bike, and I just went down the road, and I tried to make a right turn, and it started tipping over. Here's the thing. Uh, at the factory, when they built this sidecar, we later found out, they mounted the wheel and shock pivot bracket upside down. So what happened was the wheel was mounted lower than it's supposed to, which pushed the sidecar higher, which made the bike leaning over. So when you sat on it still, you were at the tip point. 
Right. And well, actually, you're probably compressing the suspension of the bike, so you're leaning yeah. the bike even farther to the left. So when you're just sitting still, you're at the tip point. All you do is lean, nod your head to the left, and the whole bike will flip. And and the sidecar wheel wasn't compressing because the suspension was already at its limit because the it was upside down, basically. It, right? it was a mess, yeah. which didn't <laughs> stop MotoGP <laughs> from no. trying to Pete, ride it in the barrel races. Pete is the hard, hardest charging <laughs> mofo that I've met. He is fearless. And I was watching him, and his system he came up with, <clears throat> you think, so the sidecar's on the right, so you sh- should be good for all left turns. But even that was hard. So he figured out that he could just lean the bike up and get that sidecar in the air and then make the left turn. <laughs> That's like you are defeating the whole purpose of a sidecar, 100%. He, as much as everyone else feared that sidecar, he embraced that sidecar. Well, it was fact, fa- he fascinating. He embraced it to breaking it. Thank God. Well, then we figured yes. out it was built upside down. And he broke it because the stress points were all working against each other because it was mounted upside down. I just, we brought it back to camp. And I'm like, take it off. Like, I'm done. It's a wash. But uh, he and his dad, yeah. who's an engineer, jumped yeah. in there, figured out it was all assembled wrong, took it apart, put everything back together. We're going to try it again. What do you think? That, what do you think? I want to know from you guys. What do you think the odds are that... It has a medium level of expectation of fun. I, I think it will be rideable, actually. Oh. I think it will. I think someone should definitely try it. <laughs> <laughs> Not any of us. So, well, yeah. I think what was the final comment? It's, it's, it's like an ornamental feature now. It's better, but it's more <laughs> ornamental than functional. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Anyway, I, I have I, hope. I have hope. But again, the day is young. Yeah. The weekend is just beginning. We are making we're making so many friends and having such good time. So, let's go out there and see what we can find, and let's uh, start getting some stories to share. Yeah, it won't be hard. No, not at all. And maybe some meat on a stick. That sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're here with uh, Paul from Replica Motorcycle Parts, and I'm looking at a table of of different parts for different bikes, and. Uh, Tell us a little bit. So, tell us what you do, and and you know what what problem you're fixing that you want to solve. So, what we do is we uh, make replica of obsolete motorcycle parts, mm-hmm. uh, specifically uh, any make and model. What we really are is a technology company. Uh, we've developed the products, the the process, and the knowledge to go back and remake a part using a 3D printing process. Okay. So we make parts out of rubber. We make parts out of plastic. We make parts out of uh, steel, aluminum, nylon, nylon. Yeah, I think you were saying there are like seven different materials. Yeah, for we it. have seven different materials. Even on the rubbers, isn't there different like elasticity? Yeah, there's there's different uh, hardnesses. So we go yeah. all the way from what's called a Shore A sixty up to a Shore D. Mm-hmm. So we can do, you know, and, and the difference is it, it give each d- different hardness fits a different application. So this is a chain slider. It's, it's loose to go on, but you want to be rare wear resistant. This is a very soft part that mounts an air filter. It's got to be contorted to put on. <laughs> it has to be very soft to absorb the vibration. Um, and they're all properly engineered, so this is uh, resistant to gas, mm-hmm. resistant to grease, all that stuff. So tell us, for, for those of us who are ignorant in this, tell us, tell us from a layman's point of view, what's the process to do 3D printing in different materials like this? So the first thing you do is you, you have to create a digital version of the part, right? So what we do is we go back and we get an original part, we measure it, and using a 3D CAD program, we create a digital version of it. 
All right, so it looks, yeah, it's a computerized mm -hmm. implementation of that part. We'll print out a couple of different pieces of it to measure, verify, do some design verification. Then we end up with the final model. We create a, it's called an STL file, which is a triangulated version of it. And we send it through a program called a slicer, which creates a G-code, which breaks it down into layers. Mm -hmm. In 3D printing, we do everything by layers. And you said it was four microns? 80, 80 microns. 80 microns. So we can do 20, 40, and 80 microns. So for, for comparison, what is a hair? Oh, I don't know. Somewhere around that size. <laughs> okay. So, but it's... it's it, yeah, it's incredibly small. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, in dimensional accuracy, we're running about seven thousandths of an inch. Okay. So, uh, you know, as you see the 3D spline, uh, fits on perfectly, engages perfectly. And that's a feature that's less than, uh, I, I think that's probably 25 thou. So, we can get, we can create some pretty small details on a part. Now, did you do the gear also, or just the, the we, right? The right, right now we've just done the uh, the knuckle. Okay, and that's for a Kickstarter. That's for a Kickstarter. Um, we will do the gears. We'll do the pawls. There's there's nothing stopping us from doing that. Um, I got a question for you. Sure. I mean, I think 3D printing isn't that new, but we've all seen plastic. Yes. So metal, aluminum, steel. How is that process? If it's not milling and it's not welding, how are you creating? So it's 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 a what's called sintering. So what you do is you use a laser on a powder, oh, and, okay. and you the the size of the powder is very very small, and you get different shapes of powder. It's all done that way, and then the laser melts it, and you do it layer by layer. Oh, two stroke man coming through. Vintage motorcycle days. Vintage, vintage, vintage motorcycle days. To get the sound waves coming and going. Um, so you, you create a, a, it's built up by layer, but the layer thicknesses is so small and there's a residual effect from the heat below that it's what's called isotropic. So it's solid. Mm -hmm. So even though you build it by layers, you don't have um, an issue with strength. It's the same strength in every access. And you're using different, so you can, eventually you could do Kind of very hardened steel, yes. high quality, and, and then lower quality stuff. Yeah. For... yeah. Right now we do uh, aluminum. We got two different grades of aluminum. Uh, stainless steel, two different grades. We have two grades of uh, tool steel. So the what what's happened in the 3D printing marketplace was um, whether it's plastic or metal, all the original patents have expired. Okay. Oh, right. All right. So now there's just been an explosion of people coming into the marketplace, not just with 3D printing equipment, but with uh, materials. Uh, every month there's a new formulation of aluminum or stainless or, or, or a, a different plastic composite comes out. Titanium? Titanium exists as well. Yep, you can print in titanium. You can print in, in different grades of copper. As some people know, there was a rocket set off a couple of months ago that was 80% 3D printed. Really? And most of the, the, the engine was all 3D printed in a, a, a copper aluminum alloy. Hmm. So, so it's pretty crazy. So this is kind of game-changing for yeah. the restoration world. Bagel, you must be kind of going nuts here. Yeah. I mean, there, especially in the scooter world, there are a lot of parts that are just not able to you just can't find them anymore yeah, yeah. and to have this as a resource is, is huge uh, and and looking at the the quality of the metal parts here you know 
I know that a lot of people associate 3D printing with sort of like you know, like plastic pieces where it's it's sort of like not not super fine uh, resolution, yeah. and they have these like these you know, visible lines and ridges in it. Yeah. The metal, it's like you don't even see that. It's just a solid surface. Yeah, it's really uh, impressive. A lot of people's familiarity with 3D printing is based on the consumer printers, right. the, the low cost Chinese versions and stuff. Mm -hmm. We do industrial printers. The, the, these are much more expensive, much more refined processes. Yeah. Similar tech, similar approach, similar technology. They just done better and then we're very because we design the part we take into consideration is going to be printed mm -hmm. so there are certain things that you make you you uh, accommodate when you design it mm -hmm. so it comes up nicer right all right so you avoid certain radiuses certain types of edges and stuff like that so you don't sacrifice anything in the part yeah but you get a better part at yeah. the end now, do you need to do any sort of machining afterwards after the printing? No, no, really? I hate post-processing. Wow, <laughs> that's that's I don't, really I don't, convenient. I don't even like painting. Yeah. <laughs> so on the on the kickstart knuckles, um, the only thing I did was uh, tap it. Yeah. So I got a question for you. So if somebody is needing a part for a project they're working on, yeah. So they have to have a part to scan first. Yeah. Okay. Well, we don't scan, but they have to have but, to give us a part to yes, make. Yes, yeah, to, to measure. Yeah. So if they have to have a part. Yeah. But now, once you have gotten all the measurements, mm -hmm. do you now have a database? Yes. So that you have that, you know, 19, you know, 55, Honda, whatever. Yeah. And like, yeah, we, ha we have that. Yeah. So you can just start yeah, then it goes print on, on demand. Yeah, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Okay. How long have you been doing this? Uh, so we started being... We came out of stealth mode in January. Okay, so this is <laughs> brand new. Yeah, we, we, I mean, um, we've developed the printers for the rubber and the printer technology to do the very soft rubber. And it's not just to make one part. You've got to be able to make the same part over and over and over, you know, and that's always harder. Um, so then we started, we started with rubber specifically because nobody was doing it in everything on a motorcycle is mounted in rubber. Yeah. So we perfected the rubber. Then we moved on to the air filters and other plastic parts, and now we're into the metals. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going to start making silencers. We are going to make water pump impellers. We're going to make gears. Um, we haven't found any real limitation yet on what we can make. Yeah. Um, and if you go into the 3D, so it, the industrial world calls it additive manufacturing because 3D printing has become known as the cheap Chinese layered little things. But if you go into that world, Porsche's race cars are using 3D printed pistons. Oh wow! Oh, wow. Uh, you see people with 3D printed titanium connecting rods. Hmm. Uh, KTM's MotoGP uh, team uses 3D printing Kawasaki's motocross teams, but uh, KTM's Moto3 uh, team mm -hmm. uh, they, they 3D print parts for that bike constantly. Wow! And so it's 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 not focus pocus stuff now it's like solid reliable stands up to the demands and, yeah. and is, is really become a real thing so I got a question for you so you're a rider yeah so I'm guessing that you had a bike that needed a part that started this whole thing is that true is that well yeah there's there's an element of truth to that yes yeah what bike was that uh, so I have a sickness called Carabella <laughs> Carabella was a, uh, a bike made in Mexico from late 60s into the middle 80s uh, they're actually licensed in the latter part they're licensed motovilla parts um, 
Mexico had horrible metallurgy, so they don't last. Uh, and they sit in the corner, and, and rubber and plastic just degrades. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's fascinating just sitting there in the air, come back five years later, and it's gone. Um, so I needed a couple rubber parts for that. Um, I was designing computer chassis at the time during the pandemic and couldn't get uh, sheet metal part prototypes made quickly, so I bought a printer and started making metal parts. And then once you get into it, you discover, well, hold on a second, I can do this. Can't I do that? Can't I do that? Can't, and yeah, so it just keeps it just keeps going and on and on and on. So how how big a parts can you do? Can you do an engine case yet, or can you do a frame? I can't. Well, I can't do a frame yet. There are people who do frames. And so so when you see how how big a can I do? It's basically the equipment that we have. Yeah. Um, so the biggest part we can do is about 400 millimeters. Okay. Yep. Yep. 400 by 300. So what's that? 16 inches, 18 inches. But I'm guessing bigger stuff's coming. Oh yeah, there are, and I said that's what we can do. There, yeah. are, there are machines that, that do bigger stuff, but uh, we haven't found anything we can't make. Um, technically, we could make engine cases. We we have made uh, ignition covers. We are working on uh, clutch covers right now, mm -hmm. so we'll have you know replica clutch covers. So basically, if somebody is looking for a part they can't find. Call you. Yeah, absolutely. Call you, because yeah. you, you also want to build your, your database. Yeah, yeah. So how do people find you? So you find us, the easiest way is on the, the web. Uh, you know, an engineer, so the name of the company has no marketing genius. It's www.replicamotorcycleparts.com. Sorry, couldn't come up with anything. <laughs> no, that's great. And you know what else you did was smart. You put on the Facebook group, hey, I'm going to be there yep. showing off these 3D parts. Come see me. And I saw that, and I said, I want to check it out. Yeah. So hopefully, it seems like just we were watching a few other people, and they have these, like, light bulb moments when they realize. Yeah, I oh, mean. Oh, wait. You can make it? Yeah. It, it's fascinating. And one of the reasons we invite people to come out, and, and we're here much more for touch and feel, yeah. right? Because... There's nobody else doing this. So, right. oh yeah, I've heard about 3D printing. What's it like? And my kid's making a part for a drone or this or that. Um, and it's like, come out and they start, oh, you make you make rubber. Oh, you make plastic. Oh my God, you make metal. Oh my, oh, <laughs> you can make that? Yeah. And, it, and you can just see them going through that, that process of like, holy cow, can you make me this? Yeah, sure. No, it's not a problem. We can do that. But you were just talking to a guy who had a side covers he was looking for for yep. an old Honda. And yep. you, you can do stuff like that. We do that. We had a guy this morning looking for... Um, uh, chain sprockets for a 1927 BMW ah. um, that mm. did not have a standard pitch that mm. we have today. Wow. And it's like, sure, send me the part. I can. He still has parts, so I can pull the pitch data off of it. I can make that. Yeah. Cool. Well, there you go. Isn't that pretty cool? It's pretty awesome. Yeah. I know. It's well, a game changer. Paul, thank you very much no, for your you time. Thank you for coming over. Uh, com. Yep, absolutely. Check it out. Tell them the Misfits sent you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, thanks. Hey, this is Naked Jim, still at, thankfully, AMA Vintage Days here in beautiful mid-Ohio, and it just keeps getting better. So right now, the sun has risen on a glorious day here in the most corn-growing place I've ever seen in my life. Maybe not, I've never been to Nebraska, so. But I'm standing in the infield with a misfit for sure, one of us now, uh, the Guinness record-holding Wendy Crockett. Hey, Wendy. Hey, Naked Jim, how you doing today? I am great, and I am curious. 
but not about all the other feats that you are well known for have, and have been on the podcast for. But we're standing underneath the booth of Vintage Rides. Yeah. And I ride. I like vintage things. So I'm curious. So maybe a, an overview of what's going on here. So Vintage Rides is a tour company, and we operate tours all over the world, 20 different countries right now, uh, just expanding into the uh, U.S., and all of our rides are on Royal Enfield motorcycles. Okay, so now I'm even more curious. So you'll see a lot of companies that do this kind of stuff, the tours over there. So I think probably I'm curious about the nuts and bolts first, right? Um, what, what, how, what's it going to cost me and what am I going to get for my money? Well, it depends. We actually have a little something for everybody. Oh, good So we have, from our very shortest tours, are actually off-road training classes in France. Whoa. You'll yeah. do, that sounds cool. You'll do a day of range work and then two days of semi-guided dirt roads around France. So, and, wow. you know, that will have the, um, the hotels and the nice local eateries and things like that um, planned out for you. As far as uh, bigger tours, our really accessible tour uh, would be our tours in Morocco. And that's um, wow. a little bit of a, a shorter tour. All of them are really focused on cultural immersion and yeah. national parks and things like that. Uh, but that's a bit of a shorter tour. It's not a lot of aggressive off-roading. And um, in US dollars, it's gonna be like 22, 300 bucks, somewhere like that. Yeah. So um, all of our tours are priced in euros. So I, I do the conversion off the top of my head. But it's, it's under the $2,500 yeah. price range for that. Yeah. So you cover your flight into uh, whatever given country is calling your name. Mm -hmm. And pretty much everything is covered from there on out. All the way up to, we have a brand new tour in Patagonia. Uh, that one is running about $6,300 with the conversion rate. That's a much longer, several week long tour. Okay. Um, and then as far as the uh, type of riding you'll find on the tours, we have everything from our luxury tours. That's just a couple hours of riding every day, maybe 85 miles, mostly all paved roads, really nice hotels, uh, really nice planned out meals to our adventure end of the spectrum. Those are gonna be the rides that you're gonna do on the Himalayans. You might have a couple hundred miles of aggressive off-roading, sleeping in yurts, um, you know, eating your meals from little food stands and, and right things on. like that. So we, we have a whole spectrum of adventure depending on what's calling your name. I love it. Well, we're out the gate just the, 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 the kind of the big thing is the price is totally affordable. Like, because if you're in the market, I'm going to go travel internationally. Somebody's going to hook me up. You know it's going to cost. But I think that's a very doable price range for what you can get. And I, I want to ask more about the training in France, but it's kind of cool. Yeah. That I just, Wait, does it come with Brie? Does it? It certainly could. We can make special arrangements. Well, forget the cheese. We want the pastries. Live to ride, ride to eat. And wine. But Don't it's kind of neat that you could even ramp up. You could start by doing some training and get your international feet wet a bit. Learn how to travel internationally. Spend some time there. I do love the idea if you could take do your training and go across the Strait of Gibraltar right to Morocco. Um, but Tell me more about what the trips you offer. Where do you go? You know, what are kind of the, the places maybe other people don't so much? Man, so we really pride ourselves in uh, offering tours in countries that not a lot of other people think to go. And there's a lot of beautiful places. You know, we offer a lot of different tours in India, Nepal, Bhutan, places like that. Where right. you, Jim, where's Bhutan? Okay, I got. I have to fess up. I actually had to ask Wendy, how do I actually pronounce Bhutan, which is a lovely, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a Buddhist, a Buddhist country, 
that's nestled somewhere between India and China. Very well done. Yeah, and it sounds like a love. So I'm, I am curious about Bhutan since we're on it. Tell yeah. us more about that tour in particular. Well, the the cool thing, the, what makes Bhutan a really interesting destination is they were actually closed. They had closed borders to travelers up until like 1972-ish. Wow. So they have not been open to travel for long. And even still, they have really strict limitations on how many people can travel in the country. So um, it's it's a really unique destination um, for that reason. Uh, but it's yeah, it's when you think of classic Himalaya mountains yeah. and the yeah. the uh, monasteries and the uh -huh. just beautiful colors and incredible food. That's the experience you'll have on uh, the Tibet um, the uh, Bhutan tour. Yeah. But it doesn't have a lot of aggressive off-roading. It has okay. a lot of nice, nice paved roads and a lot of uh, interesting off-the-beaten-track stuff. Um, while we have other tours in, in the same uh, Himalaya region that uh -huh. we go to the Mustang Valley, that's one of our most aggressive off-road tours. Just, you know, back-to-back, -back, you're going to have totally different experiences right in there. Wow. So, and, and typically, how long does the tour last? Or again, does it depend? So it, it depends. It, it can go anywhere from, you know, five, six days all the way up to three weeks plus. Okay, and I'm trying to picture in my mind now, who, like, who's our tour guide gonna be? What might our, I mean, you have to pick your tour, right? Let's go with one of your favorites or one you think people might like hearing about. How does your day start? Who's your guide? So, um, let's let's talk about Rwanda, because Rwanda's one ah, of those that's destinations. That gets your attention, doesn't it? Yes, because that, Rwanda and Mongolia were the first two. They're just, they're stunning, they're just, visually stunning places to visit and they're not places that people think of when they think of doing tours especially rwanda the the no, dude i saw the movie <laughs> yeah, the, most people are like oh why and then you really start looking at it and thinking about it and it's not a highly um you know visited yeah. country for tourism one that makes it really high on my list uh -huh. because you are going to fly into this country and you're going to have a much more authentic experience. Exactly. You're going to have a much more interesting cultural experience. People are genuinely excited to see visitors and see these cool vintage looking bikes are yeah. really attention grabbers. Our fleet of Royal Enfields in Rwanda, as far as we can determine, are the only Enfields in Rwanda. So they're, they're really, really unique bikes, but um, you'll uh, fly into the capital and from there it's a lot of short hop days uh, about a hundred mile range um, but you're going through national parks that have some of the only wild silverback gorillas uh, on the continent um, you're going Jim you'd be another silverback gorilla <laughs> well you know it wouldn't be the first time I was referred to such but yeah uh, stand in small villages right on lakefronts you have some of the best bird watching marshlands in all of Africa. Never so you thought. you it, all these things exactly you never would have thought you have just this absolutely stunning crossroads of bird migration routes yeah. Um, yeah. and to sit there and take all of this stuff in and you go who knew uh -huh. uh, just yeah. such stunning beauty and you're right across the border to Tanzania and you have some safaris that are uh, possible to add on there and yeah a lot of really amazing stuff in a really unique destination. So that's what calls my name. All right, I have a question. So I'm a, I want to give you an opportunity. I want to ask you to ask him three questions. And from his answers, I want you to recommend which trip you think would best suit him. Okay. Um, how would you rate your level of uh, off-road riding? 
Uh, what scale are we using? Uh, no thank you to I'm I'm getting ready to uh, you know do the uh, bar show to Vegas. I'm scared. I typically I, 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 I get scared a lot. I typically when I ride beyond my ability, it's out of I didn't think it was going to go like that. But I would say I'm a, I'm a solid average big bike ADV guy, dirt bike ADV guy. But I'm not. I would not call myself a good dirt bike rider. Okay. He's competent in sand. Okay. So I've, I've done plenty of adventure riding and all that kind of stuff. So all right. yeah. So we would might uh, be thinking about a motorcycle ramble for you that has uh, four to six hours of riding a day, and okay. it, it might have about twenty percent off road. Uh -huh. um, but keeping you on small roads, heavily paved. Two more questions. Let's okay. Start okay. All right. So, um, do you prefer more uh, like heavy focus on like? busy culture uh, interactions, uh -huh. or do you like more wide open spaces? So I do a lot of motorcycle camping, a lot of times by myself. A, I enjoy time by myself, but it's also hard to find people to ride with sometime. So my, my moment of zen is being in the Mojave Desert completely by myself, either watching the sun come up or watching the stars or whatever it might be. So I am definitely put me out in the middle of mother nature. I enjoy the company of others, but I don't need it. All right, and do you, have like a temperature range that you are comfortable Ooh, good with? Good question. Well, what I've learned from experience, which is where most of my hard lessons come from, you know, and I guess we're talking about humidity too. So most of my experience is in the desert or the high Sierras. Um, anything over 85, I'm real cautious. I don't go far from camp. I got a lot of water. Anything over 90 in dry heat, it's a no-go for me. Right. And cold, I, I've ridden in the low 20s in the high Sierras in the morning having a great time. So, but the heat I know will kill you. So based on that, I am going to say Namibia. Ooh. Oh, I gotta get my atlas out again. All right, <laughs> hang on. I, I have a map is on that, the wall. Is that like in Narnia? Is that a Narnia place? <laughs> oh, here's a map. Here so Namibia is just Look above South that. Africa. It's a lot of beautiful desert riding, maybe a little bit more um, off-roading than our standard ramble but it's mostly like sand stuff. It's not real aggressive, like death road battle stuff. Gotcha. Really um, kind of infrequent interactions, but when you do, it's mostly like the nomadic herders that um, live in the area. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. a lot of, uh, you know, this is the kind of tour where we carry our own gas, just in case that one yeah. dude that has buckets of gas yeah, is asleep when you get gas. there. <laughs> yeah. Yep and um, a lot of really fantastic nature, a lot of really fantastic scenery. Um, that is my jam. Now, I, I'm gonna add one more, I guess, question, but I, th I think I know the answer. How nice of a hotel do you need to stay in, or can you sleep in a yurt on the ground? Uh, I can easily do both. Now, I will say sometimes sleeping on the ground is not really vacation, but um, it, as far as, if I could get access to nature and natural beauty, um, I would sleep on the rocks in a garbage bag. Okay. So yeah, I'm down for whatever. So you're sticking with the Namibia? I'm sticking with Namibia because I, I went off of you like camping in the desert. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I took that. None none of our trips are really um, like full-time sleeping in the dirt. Even when yeah. we're in places like Mongolia, uh, we work with local families and, and things like that. So you, you know, okay. might be staying in a guest house with families. Okay, really the most important question since, you know, it's about me. Where is the best food? Where do you think Ooh. who has the best food? Man. Or the food well, that you should Viet go try. Vietnam? We'll say the food you should go I try. was going to say Vietnam, Thailand yeah. are both amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, India. 
India is yeah. such a big place. I mean, that's like saying the U.S. has great food. India is a massive country uh -huh. with different regions. But yeah, I'm into the the really flavorful through spices and things like that. Yeah. That um, that appeals to me. Okay, I, we have time for a couple more questions. Yeah, yeah, we'll wrap it what, up. What, okay, real quick, what tour, if I'm, if I'm new to this game, like I've, I've been riding for two, three years, I like this kind of adventure thing, it calls to me, I'm really not sure what to do. What's the right tour for you there? Start in Morocco. Okay. Yep, it's your uh, very tame traffic interactions. It's yeah. not really wild uh, uh, in terms of, you know, going to Ho Chi Minh City or something yeah, like that where yeah. you are learning a whole new level of chaos and right. maybe riding on the wrong side of the road for the first time and that right. type of thing. And it's a little bit of a shorter tour so it gives you an opportunity to see if you like it, if you're riding with a pillion, yeah. see how they like uh, touring, that type of thing. Um, all with really nice accommodations and short days. Okay, and now go to the other end of the spectrum. You see this guy saunter up, he just got off his GSA with all the stickers on it, and he's got the swagger, and he's kind of checking it out. And you want to throw something at this guy who's done a lot of it, right? I've done this tour, I've gone with this, and you want to show him something different. And like, well, we, we're going to show you something different. What would that Wait, be? I want to add to that. He's in all climb gear, and yeah. all of it is pristinely clean. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that changes the image just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not so, one of us. <laughs> got it. Um, so, our among our, our most aggressive tours would be Tanzania as a, a long, aggressive off-road tour, and then the Mustang Valley tour. Really? Okay. Yeah. So if you could compare one of those to like a BDR, Nevada, California BDR, if you've ridden those that have been around them, I don't know. Harder, um, same in the ballpark? I would say they're going to be the same to a little harder. Okay, so yeah, Just, have your game. Yeah, the, the level of remoteness yeah. oh, I think okay. is what, what takes people by surprise. So uh, not only is the riding often very technical, very rocky, you will often find you know rivers washing out the road or long rock slides you need uh -huh. to get past and that type of thing. Uh -huh. But I think people are really surprised with how remote that is if something does really? go wrong yeah. or they worry about things going wrong. Right. Um, well, I think if you're on a, a ride with vintage rides, everything will go smooth as the Silk Road is what I'm thinking. Yeah. So. No, I like, I mean, Africa, um, South America, Asia. These are all these great destinations. There's really something for everybody. And I think, and I think the Royal Enfield, it's great. It's an accessible bike. Pretty much anyone can throw a leg over it and have a good time on it. It's a great setup. I really love what you guys are doing. And what I love to tell people is we bring you as close to real adventure as you are likely to get without risking your vacation. Right. So we take you on these roads that might be aggressive, but they're scouted. We have local knowledge. And, uh, yeah. and what, uh, what, one quick minute. What's the one thing any adventuring motorcycle in different countries needs to be able to... How do you be cool with everybody when you roll into town? Oh, when you roll into town, I thought you were asking about on the tours themselves, and in which case we do we do interviews with people to make sure that you are in a well-matched group. Yeah. Oh, I would just move uh, like when you pull into to Bhutan, and how yeah. do you make good with the friendlies, like the locals? Do you wave? Do you smile? Do you give them a pack of cigarettes? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think that depends on the country too. But we oh, have good point. we have local guides. Yeah. So uh, you know the local the, guides. the local guides that know you know the the nice villages and the nice time of day to catch that farmers market and. And that type of thing, but I'll say it again: the bike is a real eye catcher. Yeah. You often don't have to work hard, and I've done a lot of riding on Enfields, and you don't have to work hard for people to walk up to you and go, "What is You've that?" You've just done a lot of riding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, a lot that of riding. Is true. 
By the way, also, I wanted to thank you for being an integral part of our burnout contest team oh, last I, night. I was honored what'd to have you, been invited. What did you think? First time you're at Vintage Day. That was... This no, is the first time in the campground. First time in the campground? I am, I feel like I found my people. We found... <laughs> this and that says something. If you could have witnessed what night, what happened last night, Lord have mercy. Oh, Lord I, have mercy, just, just, just to give a little taste... Wendy grinning ear to ear, uh, MotoGP on fire, and at some point uh, I was ripping uh, duct tape and hair off of your husband's back. Yeah, if yeah, I, it all happened. If I could have bottled her emotion at the burnout competition where they're <laughs> dumping beers on Pete yeah. and his head's on fire, I think it could have been the happiest moment in your you life. Were, I'm not it sure. It was the happiest moment, I'm going to say. And I, I say that with no shame, having a wonderful husband and a wonderful daughter, that that was the happiest moment of my life. Who are, so. who are both here enjoying this, too. And you were so thick in the mix. You were as thick in the mix as anybody. No, you joined our campsite this year. It's been a fun experience. We still got a lot more. But you came here to do this. this you're, you're manning the booth. You're putting in the time. I appreciate it. Sharing everyone about Vintage Rise. How do people find out more about it? Where can they go and sign up? Uh, they can go to vintagerides.travel. Uh, we also have vintagerides.com. That is the French site that will be uh, Google translated into English. Vintagerides.travel is the uh, written by me translated where I took all the low-key sexual innuendo out. So depending on how much innuendo you want in your uh, in your tours, uh, Pick vintage We want boatloads. Yeah, yeah. Keep it on. All right, Jim. Let's get you signed up for Namibia. Yeah. For so. Oh, I was gonna say you're gonna send me something, something stupid here. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I am super down. It sounds like a great adventure. Cool. Thank yeah. you. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Well, uh, as John and I are wandering around, checking out all the booths here uh, at the infield fanboying out of course we run it we run into <laughs> another friend of the show we got mark from me miyamoto hey mark great to see you guys nice to see you again this is a three days in a row I'm, I'm, I'm in I heaven know. three days in You're a row Liza is great. didn't i see you on burn doing a burnout with a candle uh, on your head last night we'll or something that. incorrect we'll i went that. and watched some of the <laughs> <laughs> I, was not, I am not I, the only two wheels i've been on is i've been uh two up with her a few times thank you very much by the way for the hospitality we'll, the get, we'll get to that so just uh, as a reminder you and your wife Nancy wrote Mimi Emoto, these children's books. We've promoted it on the show. Um, we, I know Emma loves it. We have a lot of our listeners have bought it for their children, grandchildren. Now you're out here making a big play here at Vintage Days. So tell us what, what you're doing here with your booth. Man, this is the, the first time we've had an opportunity to come out here to Vintage Motorcycle Days. I stopped by here real fast in 2019, but this is the first time that we're actually setting up a booth here. The AMA have been fantastic supporters of Mimi and Moto. I mean, actually, even before they knew it, because it was the use of their AMA ma monthly magazine that we gave to our daughter when she was one, huh. on the potty, she was looking at motorcycles, and that's oh. what started all this stuff there off. So the AMA has been responsible for this longer. But they started carrying our books in the Hall of Fame back in 17. So we knew that this was sort of on the list of events that we wanted to mm -hmm. do, and the schedule this year sort of freed itself up and... Man, it's been great. We've got a wonderful spot here near the big AMA tent right down on the infield. So we're here with all of the Mimi and Moto books. We're here with our T-shirts and our yard signs and our stickers and everything else. We're also here with our all-kids bike booth. We're it's good a friends. twofer. It's a twofer. We're good friends with Ryan McFarland, with Strider. Uh, 
and he's given us all the supplies. So we've got a nice all kids bike activation here. We're promoting the program. We're looking for people that want to support, donate, maybe bring the program into a school. We've also got a riding area set up for the kids. So it's a great spot. The weather is beautiful. You guys are awesome. And it's been a great first day and a half here at Vintage Motorcycle Days. And uh, this will be on the list forever going forward. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. So, so uh, I'm looking at t-shirts. You got any stumpy size t-shirts around here? <laughs> Dude, everything is a stumpy size t-shirt for you. <laughs> However, I will let you know we are going to come out. We used to have some adult shirts. We made one big mistake merchandising. By the way, anybody listening to this, don't ever make a t-shirt that's white. Oh, no. Terrible idea. So anyhow, we are going to do it. I think we're, I want to do a black t-shirt with a little saying on the front. But we're going to start doing some adult size shirts. You know, I think for us with what we're doing, we're limited by uh, imagination and, and creativity from the standpoint and capital as yeah. far as doing new stuff. But we do in honor of you, yes. Stumpy, we are going to make sure <laughs> next year yep. at this event uh-huh. there will be Stumpy sized t-shirts oh, you're available man. for everybody. All right. High five for that. Love you. So you're having fun here at the event, and yes. uh, I stopped by, said hi, and I'm like, so what are you doing in the evening, Mark? And you, you didn't really have any plans, right? I had no plans. You know, typical plan was to go find some food, but uh, Liza generously gave me a, a ride down to the other end of the facility where I saw... <laughs> what was it like riding two up with Liza? Man, it was unbelievably pleasant, and I'll leave it at that. How about that? I won't go any farther than Could that. Could have went a couple different directions. But uh, we, I was brought over to the compound. I was made to feel like <laughs> I've been there for many years. I was fed. Mm-hmm. I was provided beverages. I had good conversations. We saw a bunch of the burnout stuff. And then Liza was unbelievably generous to give me a ride all the way back here to the other side of the facility so thank you very much for that I really oh yeah did you have fun it. last night i had a blast yeah right? i had a blast it was fun just sitting around talking with people it was fun watching the burnout stuff it's amazing here how many different scenes there are there's this is a scene that camping area over there's a scene there's a scene in the woods on the track tonight i guess the flat track's gonna be going off yep. someplace yep. Um, and in the swap booth. Oh, my gosh. There's Maurice. Oh, my gosh. Hey, hey, hey. You're going to step right into the interview, my friend. Hey, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Hey. No, we're all friends here. That's what's great about it. There's friends. That's what I think is great about Vintage Motorcycle Days is, yeah. is stuff like this. Yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, we're so honored to be here. We're so honored to be the association and, and the support we've had from the AMA has been awesome. And I think what we really want to try to do is continue to work with them to continue to make sure that this event attracts families and kids you know so we've got our all kids bike riding area over here all the Mimi and Moto stuff I can see over there the Stasic riding area so you've got the kids jumping on those bikes over there I mean this is really what it's about you know from the standpoint of this event going forward from this event going forward and bringing more people out You've got to get the young kids. You've got to get the short little people interested because right. those are the ones who are going to turn into the future stumpies. Somebody's and got to buy all these Somebody's got to do it for sure. So, uh, so we're, we're excited to be a part of it. I just have one last question for you. What time am I picking you up tonight? I think that you should pick me up. Let's say, <laughs> how about, uh, let's do 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. You got Back it. Back to the compound. I'm ready for <laughs> night two. All right. Yeah. Awesome. We're cooking corn tonight. I'm we got to get on that. Thank you so, All right. thank you thank so you much. So you're much, you're a fantastic. And you, so everybody listening to this to know, you need to know how passionate Liza is yep. about this event and, and not only being a part of it, covering it, letting all you folks out there know what's going on. 
her feedback to the festival to try to make little tweaks here and there is fantastic. Uh, you know, I think what you have here is just a bunch of people coming together. I, the analogy you used last night is great, but this is the, in the United States, oh, yeah. it's almost like the burning man yeah. of the motorcycle world because this place goes full on yep. at night. It's a, what's the, uh, what's that damn movie? Uh, uh, Mad Max, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. Last, that's how you feel like. So it's uh, it's fantastic. But thank you for everything. Thanks for chatting with us. And uh, bigger and better tonight. We'll see you at seven o'clock. All right, right cool. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, Liza here at Vintage Days, and uh, we are surrounded by two strokes, mini bikes. We got over over this fence here. We've got the road racing track, so you're gonna hear an announcer. Sounds going on the other side of this RV. We've got the wall of death, so you may hear sirens and clapping sounds. There's so much action going on here at Vintages. You, there's no corner you can escape it, really. So, paint that picture. There's so much going on, and I couldn't be happier in this environment. So yesterday, I signed up to do the lap for history, as I call it. It's not a race. But guess who won? I did. I passed you. I'll tell you, the rules of this race are that... Are Liza's rules. Yeah, yeah. the rules are... But they, what do they tell us for? You can't pass the head marshal, right? Yes. Cannot pass the marshal. Where were you when we crossed the checkered line? I don't actually know. Probably right at the very back. So my rule is, as long as I haven't passed the marshal, but I'm the first person behind him to cross the line, I win. Makes sense to me. See, everyone agrees. <laughs> but no one cares. <laughs> I know, except for me. Anyway, we're lining up for the lap of history and looking at all these crazy bikes. I mean, there's big touring bikes. There's, there was... A, 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 is it Honda? A Jazz? Is that a Jazz? The little Jazz scooter? And I'm like, make sure that doesn't pass me. I saw him, the 50cc. Yeah, a little 50cc, right? You got everything. And uh, just looking at all the bikes, and I look over, and not far from me, about 10 feet away, I saw something interesting. I saw a, a motorcycle with just one handlebar, basically. I'm like, what? And I look over, and the rider's got his left arm up in a sling. So I just, I pulled right up to him. I said, I have so many questions for you. So we are here with Charles. Charles, how you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I have those questions for you now. So you did the lap of history yesterday. Yes. One-handed. Yes. On a slightly modified bike. What are you riding? I'm on a 1988 Honda NX125, and uh, it is mostly stock other than the really questionable repairs done by previous owners and the more questionable ones done by myself. <laughs> Mainly lopping off the left handlebar. So, uh, yeah, well, I lopped off the uh, one side of the handlebar just kind of as a joke and kind of because I figured that would make it really hard for anyone else to try to ride it. <laughs> I uh, had taken the controls from that side and simply moved them over to all on the right. So I have a clutch lever located just above my front brake lever. I have the horn and turn signal controls that I never use anyway located nearby, and, uh, and then as well as everything that you would usually find on the right side. 
So we've uh, interviewed Mert Lal, who works with you know, riders, amputee riders. We've known people who ride with disabilities. And it's, it's really cool that people do it, that they don't let something stop them. And I remember I also, I was, I was very impressed, and I said, how long, how long have you been riding like this? I think I said two weeks, but I... <laughs> That's how I'm like, I'm going to get in front of you now. <laughs> I, I counted in my head, and I realized it has actually been about three. Uh, <laughs> July 3rd was my first hop back on the bike. Now, wow. that wasn't actually because I was waiting, I was healing. It was because I couldn't get the bike to run right. So, let's get to how you came to be a one-armed rider. So, you've been riding a long time, I assume? Uh, for 15 years or so. Okay. Uh, dirt, street, what's, what's your flavor? Primarily dirt. I really like going out and exploring back roads. I love being on the dirt. I love being able to slide. If, if, there, if there's traction, it's just, I don't know, it, it makes it less exciting for me. So what happened to bring you to this one-armed uh, position? Well, my best friend and I go on about a week-long motorcycle trip every year. And... Last year, that trip ended up being the KAT down in Kentucky. It's a just under a thousand mile loop. It's, I think it, oh, it stands for the uh, Kentucky Adventure Trail or Tour. I can't remember which. Awesome route. Highly recommend. And uh, we had gone down on our bikes to do that for our trip that year. Uh, he was on a CRF 2R. Uh, CRF 250 Rally, and I was on a KTM 640 Adventure, and we were having the absolute time of our lives down there, just screwing around, having a good time, and uh, I think on the evening of the third night of riding, uh, I don't actually remember the accident, but I remember going onto the road, and I kind of got it explained to me later on. I was coming around a broad left-hand turn on a small forest road in Tennessee when a driver in a 90s Chevy pickup truck uh, who was on apparently large amounts of amphetamines just didn't really make the turn and just came into my lane. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I tried to do, but he kind of clipped the side of the front of the bike and the handlebar. The bike actually wasn't damaged that severely. I'm repairing it now. Um, I, however, hit the front of the truck head-on with my body. Uh, hard enough to the point where it broke the cab off the frame, shoving it into the bed. Wow. I didn't know I could do that. I, I'm probably not going to try it again. Yeah, not, not recommended. Yeah, zero out of ten on that experience. <laughs> leaving a bad Yelp review right now. <laughs> but that does kind of make you sound like you're part Superman a little bit. <laughs> uh, I was thinking like Lee Majors, you know, the $6 million yeah, man. You know, you run fast, but you go slow and, the, and you get a sound effect. <laughs> Wait a minute. Didn't you say you're a machinist and designer and work with robotics? Yes. Oh, okay. Come on. Fess up. <laughs> I, I haven't put any uh, cybernetic enhancements in yet. Okay. I'm working on it. So, as a result, it looks like you had quite a few injuries. I can see a bunch of scars on you. Yes. No, that, that was just from, uh, you know, I actually put a signal on this case. Yeah, so my legs are all titanium rods now. Um, they didn't actually replace any of the joints. Uh, fortunately, I was wearing uh, knee braces. Good to hear. In the ride, and 
I didn't have any knee injuries. Now, granted, the bones were broken just above and below, but a joint injury is honestly harder to recover from yeah. than a bone injury. I love to get the r- reports on what gear helped. Oh, totally, yeah. So, and I had just gotten those as a birthday present a few weeks prior, and I'm so happy that I had them because I think learning how to walk again would have been that much more difficult if my joints Without were knees? Yeah. Yeah, without knees. Yeah. It was funny is uh, if you're... I'm 36, but if you're a few years older, they'll oftentimes, um, if they're doing the bolt into your uh, into the into the head of your hip, or if they're uh, doing a fixing a knee injury, they'll actually replace the joint at the same time. They told me that I was too young. I don't think they understand that I ride 7,000 miles on a bicycle just about every year. Wow. So. I'm a, I'm all old and used up by this oh, yeah. point. <laughs> oh, just wait, it gets better. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, like man, if I. But wait, there's more. <laughs> wow. So your injury is extensive, but you seem to have come back from it, with the exception of you lost the use of your left arm. Yes. So I have what's called a brachial plexus injury. Um, what had happened in my case is there's five nerves, one per vertebrae, that go out to each of your arms. And in my case, four of those were completely torn out of my spine, even taking some of the nerves on the inside with them. Uh, two of those vertebrae were broken in some way or another. I, I never got a clear explanation on that. And uh, the fifth remaining nerve was badly damaged. It was stretched partially torn something so basically i had some movement in my shoulder but that was it i essentially woke up in a hospital and then a few days later when uh i was on a little bit less pain medication this is kind of like well my arm doesn't work that's strange and uh that has definitely involved the learning curve, although at this point I'd say I'm definitely getting used to it. My arm is expected to eventually recover somewhat. They're not quite sure how much yet, but uh, I am starting to get little twinges and impulses. Uh, I have a, a weekly therapy I go to, and just last week I, you know, sent the the uh, message to my arm to flex my bicep harder than I ever have and it, and it just like did a little blip. imperceptible blip. That's amazing. But, but that, you don't have time to wait. That's where the journey starts, right? Yeah. Yes. So. You don't have time to wait. So when did you set your mind to get back on a bike? Well, you know, people always say that they ask the people around them if they want, you know, if they their opinions on it. And I honestly only took one person's opinion in the case and and, because his was the only one that mattered and that's my son you know he just turned 12 just this past weekend we just saw him right off on a burly two-stroke that was the burly two-stroke you heard in the beginning of the interview it was awesome yeah oh man he loves that thing and um and i asked him because you know Mind you, imagine this. It's about to be your 11th birthday, and all of a sudden you find out that your dad is in a hospital. He can't come home. You can't go see him. I, I can't imagine what went through his head with all that. And I asked him, and he said, you know, make sure you just make sure you're being safe about it, but you love it, and you should keep riding. And I think, you know, he wants to ride with me, too. He keeps asking if we'll go out, which we will in a little bit. 
It also sounds like he understands, too. Yeah. He gets it. He knows the two wheels. Yeah. So I've never been able to stay off two wheels. I've always been on bicycles, and then uh, as a kid, I always thought cars were really cool, so I guess it was only natural that motorcycles came along, too. So... Honestly, I think I didn't realize how long my recovery would be initially. Um, I was kind of hoping, you know, maybe I'll get back on at the end of summer. And then it becomes maybe I'll get back on the fall and then spring. And then and then, uh, then later spring happens. And like I say, I just can't. I, I have several other bikes, but this is the only one small enough that I can really just not have. Like, even if I lost control of it, right. you just, you know, hit the brake and stops. You're I have to imagine at some point you're in your recovery, maybe lying, let's say, lying in your hospital bed, lots of time to think about things. And you must have been thinking, what do, what do I have to modify to make this work? Exactly. I was, I had a lot of time to sit there on my phone, a lot more than I ever want again. And uh, I hopped online and basically start once I kind of knew the extent of my injuries and what to expect my recovery to be I started reading about what other people had done I started looking at pictures I'm very visual so honestly simply seeing a picture of what someone had done would do more for me than ever having them tell me and just kind of uh, reading on what people recommended there was actually a Facebook support group for that specific injury and the uh, flat tracker who I can't think of his name I believe is in that or Bert Law or oh somebody yeah yeah I, I think the one that you're uh, Bert Law makes prosthetics for people to be able to continue riding is he the flat tracker or? he was a flat tracker I think he was a grand national champion yeah yeah like like 70s era yeah yeah, road okay. always, yeah. yeah it, that might have been the disabled motorcyclist group and one of these groups he was yeah. in and uh you know, I, I think I had sent a message at some point. If he said if I need anything, he would give advice or give help. Yeah, he's a sweet guy. And uh, honestly, I was kind of wondering all these things. You know, you don't know what it's like to get back on until you actually do it. I have one arm now. Is this going to be totally different? Am I going to fall off? Am I going to do my favorite motorcycle pastime of running directly into a tree? Who knows? <laughs> <coughs> well, it still hurts. Uh, well, not on my left arm, at least. So I, I have a question. What what has been kind of the, the biggest challenge for you hopping back on? Was it something you expected or something you maybe didn't expect? Honestly, getting back on it, other than uh, getting used to operating a clutch with a different part of my body, the, the riding around, the leaning, it all feels just about exactly the same. Now, I've been on a slow bike, so I haven't really had to deal with, you know, major G-forces <coughs> of any kind, accelerating, stopping, or turning for that matter. That thing's not going to do any of that with high performance. But, uh, I mean, I've always kind of gripped the bike with my legs anyway, and I just kind of hopped on one day once I got the uh, clutch and everything assembled and told my son, hey, grab the camera, I'm going to go try riding up the street. And I did. And then uh, the next thing, I was like, all right, well, this bike's out of gas, and I know there's a gas station at the end of the street, but... The one that has ethanol free is about eight miles away. I better go to that one. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to leave ethanol in my tank for summer. Right. You know. <laughs> so I have first off a, uh, an observation. You said you're you know machinist designer. You didn't use any of those skills on modifying this. Well, you just 
it's just function, pure function, right? Yeah. So I want to bagel. You're somebody who's done a lot of modifications. Can you kind of describe what you're looking at and what you think? Uh, so what I'm seeing is there is an additional lever on the right-hand side, just above the brake lever, that is a slightly shorter lever that's used for the clutch. So I'm I'm guessing that you can probably pull the clutch in with with two fingers and then the the brake lever with your other two. That's correct. Right, and that's it's a it's a it's a genius setup, and I can I can totally see how it works. I I think it's brilliant. So I also noticed you move the. The controls that are on the left be the, uh, the the turn signal and the horn down uh, near the triple tree. That means you have to take your hand off the bar to do the turn signal. Do you use your turn signals? Um, no. Okay, that's yeah. fine. We can move on. <laughs> if you notice, uh, there, there's only two in the front, oh, yeah, they and they're not right. even actually wired. Uh. <laughs> so I'm curious, though. So you have the throttle in your right hand and the upper lever lever where the brake usually would be is the clutch and below that I said the longer lever so does that mean you're able to so roll off pull the clutch in how do you let the clutch out while rolling on how do you do that uh, I control the brake with uh, my ring finger I control the throttle with my pinky and then I squeeze the clutch with my pointer <laughs> and ring finger. I, I don't know. It's a lot of things to do with one hand, but I guess I've just been using, getting used to, you know, you open a pill bottle and take out some pills with one hand. If you can't set the thing down, you have to hold the cap. You have to hold the bottle. You have to get the pill out. And yeah, yeah. I kind of think about riding dirt. A lot of times you're just kind of barely holding onto the bars with that little pinky and your other, free, your other fingers are kind of floating around free. So I could see it not too much of a stretch, but still would scare me. I mean, who holds on to the handlebars? <laughs> True. Uh, and so how did you do on the lap uh, for history, on the track? I was having a great time. On, uh, I need to rejet the bike a little bit. So honestly, I would have been going even quicker if uh, I could get the thing to uh, have a top end. So what do we got here? Oh, little scooter. So I'm curious too, when you went to sign up for the Laughter History, did anyone at any point question or tell you you can't do it? I've never asked anyone if I can't do something. I go. wait for them to tell me and then I'll simply argue with them otherwise. In this case, they did it. I, I went up there and I and I just asked them what my clothing requirements were actually. I was like, do I need a jacket on? Do I need boots on? And, uh, and they just told me what clothes I need, kind of looked at me and were like, oh, and wash your bike. There's dirt on it. <laughs> Bagel, what do you think? On this setup, um, I don't. I don't think there's much room for improvement. Um, the only thing I could think is if, you, is if you made a custom housing that had the turn signal and the horn with the kill switch all on the same housing, so you could reach it while your hand is on the bars. And you know, maybe with your your machining skills, you could design something like that. I have thought about printing something like that, but that would also require me to get the turn signals working in the first place. Well, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> and the horn. Yeah. But, you know, if it's if you're riding it in the dirt, you know. Wow, look, there's a really clean one right there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you considered a scooter? Yes. Um, <coughs> actually, I hear that you're a Vespa guy, and I've been wanting to pick up a uh, 
50s through 70s Italian scooters. I mean, maybe not necessarily to uh, for the ease of riding, but honestly, just because I think they're cool. Yeah. Well, uh, they would be tough to ride with with one hand though, because they have a clutch and shift on the left the left hand grip. The vintage Vespas do. I can fix that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or you can and just get one of the Vespas that doesn't have yeah, that. Modern ones are twist and go, so you can use that all just with your right hand. And, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I want something I, with dents and scratches. Yeah. What about like a Bajaj or something? Are there any vintage scooters that are twist and go? Not really. Um, I mean the the. I mean there's the I mean there's the Honda Elites and Yamahas from the 80s. That a twist and go, but oh yeah, yeah, Helix would, would work great. Yeah, uh, the Elite 250. And and I think the um, the Fuji Rabbit is a twist and go with just the right hand side because it, it is an automatic transmission. So that's a possibility. Are, are, they, are Fuji Rabbits here in the states? Oh yeah, yeah. They're they're not they're not super common, but they're around. Yeah, look up Fuji Rabbit. It's a very interesting uh, late 50s, early 60s Japanese scooter. Well, there you go. That sounds weird enough to be up your alley. You actually, I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, I clearly have common motorcycles <laughs> yeah. if you look around. And then I drive a 40-year-old Range Rover as my car every day. I actually, I drive a stick every day just because I think it was another situation of I didn't ask anyone if I could. I was just like, I'm just going to go figure out how to do this. Yeah. Use a knee and when you need to, and actually, I've gotten more flexible. I yeah. keep my seat back and I full on use my foot. Oh, wow! And that way, I can do more full turns. Oh, and wow! If I'm like eating a sandwich or something, because <laughs> <laughs> you gotta eat, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's important. I find it interesting that you're not seeking out bikes that are already would work for you, like a Honda Matic or any of the new Hondas. I have a DCT Africa Twin, no clutch. Right? You're not seeking those out. No. Nope. You're like, I'll figure it out. I think you also like the challenge. Well, exactly. I, you know, I'm not going to do these things because they're easy. I'm going to do them because they're uh, hard, right? That's the, that's the candy quote. But I think I also have to add maybe kind of dumb on the end of that, too. <laughs> so what is your next challenge? So I'm actually starting to put back together the bike that I was in the wreck on. Oh, 640. Uh, yes, the 640. I... When I, I've ridden so many bikes over the years. I put like 80,000 miles on a KLR before it just exploded one day. I don't know why I had such old miles. <laughs> wait, wait, you killed a KLR? Well, actually, they it, say it can't be done. Okay, okay, actually, it still it ran fine. Oh, okay, there it you just, go. It just started billowing out a cloud of smoke one oh, day. Oh, it's fine. And, it's uh, a flesh wound. So, you know, I, I kept checking the oil. I was on a uh, kind of a weekend uh, Memorial Day trip with my friends, and we were about 100 miles from home. We had just camped out. And we decided we are going to ride home. Since we're on an off-road trip, we're going to go home and grab my Kawasaki Ninja, because that makes a lot of sense. And uh, so we took the KLR back home, and to go 100 miles, it used a whole gallon of oil. So something... It actually still ran just fine, but something was wrong with them. I'm thinking probably a valve seal just tore in half or something. <laughs> it will have again. So the 640 is going to be quite a challenge. Yes. So Even controlling that, I mean, that's got a lot of torquey power. And I love that bike, though. And so I'm trying to figure out. There's EMF, does auto clutches, and they're in southern Ohio, so I can actually just drive down there and take the bike with me. 
I am thinking about doing something where I don't have to use a clutch on the bigger bikes. And steering stabilizer was also another recommendation. Um, I have one of those on my sport touring bike, which is an old Buell. I, I would actually recommend reaching out to Mert. This is what he loves doing, is helping somebody figure that out. There may actually be some sort of an over-the-shoulder harness situation. I know you still have your arm strapped up to your body, but there might be an over-the-shoulder harness that can replicate the stability of a left arm if that's something you feel you need, because you can use your shoulder leaning in and out, right? The thing is, is I honestly don't know that I, I need that stability because I feel like I get it through my legs. It's honestly... The connection through the handlebar, it doesn't feel that off, turning, leaning. Uh, I mean, maybe if I accidentally drop the clutch, I kind of jerk back, but I've done that a couple of times this weekend, and I still went in a straight line when I did it. So it, it's really interesting. It's not what I would have expected it to be. And in my case, so like I said, I'll still have to see if I need something like that for the bigger bikes. But I'm kind of starting to think that I might not. I, I wanted to thank you for sharing your story. In fact, Bagel, you were in here earlier. I was chatting with him. I was, I was asking how he got this amazing camping spot behind the wall of death. And he's figured out he's figured out uh, a little a little in information about this this event. So tell tell us what you're doing here in this spot. So I am here in the camping spot in the infield. I have racing behind me, the wall of death next to me, all the vendors in the museums on the other side. And there were a bunch of flat trackers camped here, but they went to a race today. And I'm here because I help set up the wall of death. I help assemble it each year, and I help tear it down. And some years there has been next to no one, and it is just a couple of us working hard. This year they actually had a lot of people... And they kept trying to push me off to the easy jobs. I'm like, no, I got this, I got this, which I, I probably didn't. But, you know, I'm just going to go for it anyway. But uh, that whole thing gets disassembled and it fits onto that semi-truck trailer. And it is one massive, very heavy, and entirely manually assembled Lego set is what it is. Yeah. Isn't that rad? And I think there was another little top tip if you're a little short on cash and you want to come here. Weren't you mentioning you might be able to get paid? So the AMA actually pays me to do this. Uh, I sign up with them ahead of time, and they pay you a couple hundred bucks for each day. It's totally not worth it, I think, financially, because it's about the hardest day of work I've ever done. <laughs> That's why I obviously keep doing it. And then at the end of it, you have to take it all back apart and put it back on the trailer. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I find your story inspiration. I love that you're in that mindset. It never stopped you. I mean, why should it, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I could sit there and mope and, like, kind of reminisce, but that's not going to help anything moving forward. It's just like, all right, well, this is different. Better figure out how to go have fun now. And I'll say I couldn't think of a better inspiration for your son. That's what I was about <laughs> to say. For your son, I think that is really great and to instill in him nothing has to stop you put your mind to it you can do it that's what this says right here but also i think for a lot of people understand just because you may not be able to ride doesn't mean you're not still a rider and that never goes away 
You just didn't let it stop you. I was never going to. Well, thank you very <laughs> much, man. I appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, nice talking to all of you. All right, ready? Ready. Hey, this is Stumpy John here, and uh, I am standing in the AMA tent uh, in the infield at Mid-Ohio. And as I'm standing here, I'm looking around. I've got a racetrack with vintage uh, road racing going on to the right. We've got motorcycles cruising by everywhere. We've got uh, people signing autographs. We've got people selling T-shirts. I'm looking at a whole bunch of vintage motorcycles. What an amazing spot this is. It's the greatest place in the world to be right now. You should be here. But, hey, uh, you know, when I was a, young, a youngster, just getting involved early with road racing, um, I, uh, I heard about this this guy named Steve that was uh, that was a famous racer that that actually knew a couple of my friends. So I grew up looking at, at somebody's leathers hanging on the wall. So I'm I'm so proud to introduce uh, one of my teenage heroes, uh, C Wise. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about him because I know some of our listeners don't really uh, follow racing as much as we do. But uh, he's been called the greatest all around motorcycle racer of all time. Now check this out. He's the only rider in AMA Pro Racing to win at, at the AMA 125 National, the 250 National, the Premier Supercross, the ABC TV Superbikers. He was named the AMA Athlete of the Year and an AMA Superbike Road Race National winner. Turned pro at the age of 16. And in 1976, he was the first privateer ever to win an, an AMA 125 National. And, uh, and we'll get a little more into some of the other things there. But So, uh, so Steve, uh, you started out in motocross and eventually made the transition. I was going to say... Steve, greatest racer of all time. Do you get tired of hearing that? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I do know what competition I raced against and some great, great racers ever. And and but uh, over, overall, to speak of and all the different vernaculars of racing, well, and I was able to do something that um, nobody's ever done. So it's a real blessing. Great. So let's talk a little bit about your career. So at 16, uh, you turned pro. So talk to us a little bit about the early racing, the 125 racing, and up through the motocross series. Well, uh, yeah, I started out riding motorcycles with my father, and then uh, my father had a Honda shop, which really gave me an Lucky. advantage. Yeah. Gave me a big advantage, and uh, that was before the Elsinores came out. So we were trying to ride Honda four-strokes against the YZs and the RMs and the other, you know, brands with their two strokes and it was really hard so my father in his wisdom he said I'm going to get the Penton dealership oh right. we love Pentons. we've <laughs> so, talked about Pentons. and the beautiful thing is Pentons changed my life because then yeah. I began dominating in Texas and winning and the beautiful thing is when I was inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame in 2001 right uh, John Pitt was in the audience yeah. and I told the story but I didn't tell what kind of bike it was I didn't say what my dad got I just went on kind of elaborated my dad got a, a European motorcycle brand so I could compete and I said, thank you, John, very much. for the So <laughs> nice. he was in the audience. And what a blessing for John Pitt to be in the audience when I was inducted in the Hall of Fame. And then, uh, then of course, when the CR came out, we disbanded the Pinton. The Pinton was kind of outdated after that. And, and so I started racing the CR 125 and, and the CR 250 around Texas. And I would win most of the time. And then we, then we thought we'll go pro. And then that's kind of what happened. We just kind of went on up there and went to a pro. What was it like turning pro? Were you racing against like Roger DeCoster and Bob Hanna and some of those guys? No, that not DeCoster in the beginning. Yeah. Because I was racing. Well, Bob Hanna came in when I was already a pro. In fact, I raced Bob Hanna in 75 and lapped him in New Orleans because he, he, he had a heat stroke. Oh. But he wasn't, he wasn't a factor right. He was running for DG. Okay. But then when Bob Hanna came on the scene in 76, we know what happened. He, yeah. he dominated yeah. him. <clears throat> and we didn't beat him very much. We beat, I beat him some, but not not that much. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, the race against all the guys. I mean, Marty Smith, Marty Tripes were my teammates. Uh -huh. Ron Reed, Jeff, uh, Jim Pomeroy, Jeff, uh, Jimmy Ellis, those were all my teammates. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, race against the premier races in the, in the world. Yeah. So one day you woke up in the morning and said, I want to go road race. Well, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> Basically, after I won the Superbikers the first year in 1980, and then I won it again in 1981, that's when things began changing because um, Freddie Spencer, who was the Honda factory road racing right. rider, right. was going to Europe. Yep. And so Honda road racing team was going to be looking for another rider. Mm -hmm. And after I won the Superbikers the second year in a row, the Honda road racing manager said, let's give Steve the first opportunity yep. and ride the road bike and see if he can do good. And when I went to Willow Springs and did a test session with them, um, they liked it and they hired me. So that's how that happened. And I got a question for you about that. We're looking over here, a nearly identical bike. This is Fast Freddy on it. And this bike here of yours says Steve. How come you didn't get a cool nickname? Well... I was called the Texas Tornado in motocross. Oh, there we go. In motocross. But I didn't road race long enough to really become, you have a nickname that I could think Should about. Should we work on one right now or are we good? No, we don't. We're good. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, I, I'm, a, I'm a now guy. I live in the now. Yeah. And the past is great. I love it. I love being yeah. here. But I'm more of a forward thinking sure. person. So I, this I, is great. It's good. I'm going to give you a better answer. What's that? Anyone with the name Steve doesn't need a nickname. I Steve agree. is cool. That's, right. That's a cool That's right. name, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Did you hear that, baby? <laughs> you missed it? So talk to me about, you were, uh, this. I love this quote. I remember sitting there in the front row at Laguna Seca and looking over and seeing Kenny Roberts, Freddie Spencer, Randy Mamola, and Wes Cooley on the grid. And uh, so what was that like racing against those guys? And I think if I remember right, you came in third at Laguna, correct? I got fourth that day. Fourth, okay. We were there last weekend. Yeah. Oh, cool. If I would have got third, I would have won the Formula One championship that year. If I would three points away, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, or two, two or two or three, something like that. But anyway, um, so wait, he was two points away from winning the whole the whole series for the year. I was actually leading going into the last wow. race. Wow, pretty but amazing. If I, I would have placed one place higher in any race all year, I would have won the championship. But anyway, but Mike Bowen had some breakdowns, and I was very consistent. I mean, he was actually more deserving of me than to win the championship because he was faster, but not much. Yeah. You know, but, <laughs> But um, Mike's a fantastic road racer. But um, you know, going back to that quote, here's the way, the way I look at that. Kenny was lucky to be in the rig good with me. There you go. See, I mean, there you, know, you go. I mean, I could, I, I could kick his tail in the superbikers. Yeah. I, I would lap his butt. So, you know, <laughs> but for road racing, Kenny Roberts was one of the greatest ever. Freddie Spencer, Kenny Roberts, Eddie Lawson, Wayne Rainey. Yeah. At that time, Wayne Rainey and I were dead even. We were dead even. And then, of course, look at Wayne. I got hurt, though, and I quit. Yeah. And I look and see what happened to Wayne. I think, God, I wish I could have done a few more years, and I probably wouldn't have Europe to do. Because Wayne's I was, a big fan of our podcast. He's a friend of our podcast. Yeah, Wayne is a great person. Did I you see him ride? Was yeah. it last year? Yeah, I did. He, that's amazing. Him and Kevin and, and Kenny. And, yeah. <laughs> hey, can so, I ask, can yeah, I ask a question? Yeah. I have a question for you, because I think one of the reasons you're quoted as being one of the greatest overall racers is going from motocross to road, right? Which now, so many racers cross-train because they find those skills cross over. Not so many were doing it back then. What do you think, what skills did you take from dirt to the track that gave you an advantage? That's a, a good question because they're completely different. And the, the thing that really makes me happy, and I'm not sure if I said this earlier or not, maybe I did, but I was racing motocross. I've done so many interviews. I'm yes, like, you're good. Yeah. I was racing motocross at Unadilla 
against Bob Hanna at the 250 Grand Prix mm-hmm. in 1981, mm-hmm. and I beat him that day. Wow. In 1981, and uh, in the Grand Prix, and one year later, I'm on the front row with Kenny Robertson, Freddie Spencer, and, we- and Randy Mamola and Wes Cooley wow. at Laguna. In wow. one year, I went from top world class racing. Grand Prix motocross right. into Grand Prix road, road racing yeah. with Kenny and Eddie on the amazing. So, so, and I, I look back and I go, well, and I will guarantee you, none of those guys in that front row could have done that. I mean, there's no way they could have gone 45 sure. motos and won. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to brag. No. I know what it means to be a motocrosser. People have no idea the conditioning you have to be in mm-hmm. to be a top world class motocrosser. And then, but but Kenny and Eddie and Freddie were incredible in road racing. Oh, and were you more comfortable with rear wheels sliding around? Because of your dirt experience? Well, you didn't slide road racers that much. <laughs> a little bit, but not, not, not that much. So, in the, in the, in the 80, 70s, 80s, there were two things I used to love when it came on. One was anytime Evil Knievel jumped anything, yes. and anytime the Superbikers came on. So, and for folks that don't know, the Superbikers was a, was kind of the first precursor to, to... And it was one of the largest audiences of the world. Yeah, so they did. They mixed in road racing, flat track, a little bit of kind of motocross jumps, right, right, although not right. hardcore. And that was, and they put it on ABC TV, and you, you are on that show in front of 30 million viewers, yeah. and one. So you were kind of the the, yeah. the, the badass of uh, of the Superbikers. So t- yeah. tell me a little bit about the race and what it was like to win that. And you beat, I think you beat Eddie Lawson, right? In that the couple times, year, yeah, a couple yeah. times. Um, well, Kenny Roberts is in there. The first year, Roberts, Freddie Spencer, Lawson, uh, um, a lot of people in the first year, but then. Yeah. They, they were so far back, they didn't want to come to second year. <laughs> Except Eddie Lawson. Eddie Lawson, and he was very competitive. In fact, Eddie ended up winning a couple years later. But um, the first year, I beat Andre Muller, who was a 500 uh-huh. world champion from America. And, you know, Ricky Graham, yeah. Spent, Springsteen, they were all in there as well. And the second year, um, I won. I beat Graham Noyce, got second. And, yeah. and Lawson got third. Eddie Lawson got third. And um, what it was like, it was fantastic. And that was really kind of my game. I mean... I was able to adapt to all that stuff real, apparently real good because I won yeah. it. And I should have won it a third year in a row, but Danny McGood Chandler beat me for uh-huh. reasons we're not going to talk about. But anyway, it's, it is what it is. That's but, great. Uh, yeah. And then one, one other thing, too. So in, in 82 or 83, you were here. 83, you were here in uh, kind of rough conditions, two races. First race didn't go so well. Second race went differently. No, first race went good. Saturday. Okay. I won it. You won it. I won it. Because there was one that I read in one of your bios that said you came from behind uh, at Mid-Ohio here to, to take the take the lead. No? Well, that sounds good. I know. Well, well she should adopt that if it's not the case. Tell, uh, me, well, tell me about the Mid-Ohio race I in 83. I that way, but the, the Mid-Ohio race here, the Superbike National, um, you know, I was dice with Mike Bowen, and he actually ran off the track. Yeah. And so I... You know, end up winning that event pretty easily. Yeah. I kind of, we were pretty, we were way ahead of everybody else. Fred Merkel got second. Flying Fred. And um, then Sunday here, it was raining. Right. And uh, Honda had the NS 500 for me to ride, and I had a hard time yeah. going from this heavy bike onto that light two-stroke. That's really what ended my career. Uh, but anyway, they had that here, and I said, I'm not riding that thing in the rain. Yeah. And I said, I refuse. Somewhere at the oh, you took this out against the GP. I took bike? 70 against GP and all the thousands in, in the rain. I got second. Wow. Ball went, Mike Baldwin beat me, and wow. uh, I got second. Beat everybody else. Wow, that's awesome. On this thing right here. Yeah. It, it, but it was in the rain. If it had been dry, you know, I wouldn't have ridden this. But so you're the Grand Marshal here yes, at AMA Vintage Days. What an honor! Yeah, yeah. I hope you're enjoying it here. And I was uh, honored to be part of the the parade lap yesterday, following you around the track. And I'm just curious, when you're out there on the track, does it all come back to you? 
Does, do you remember every turn? You know, you really do. I was reminiscing as I was riding around, reminiscing and envisioning my win back in 83 and just seeing the track. And Yes, I, I really was. It was I kind of got emotional. Thursday we came here and went, went around the track on golf carts. Mitch took me around and, and uh, the head of AMA, Rob. And, um, yeah, I, I really got emotional, the, the Thursday especially. And then riding it yesterday with everybody and today, it was uh, very moving for me. It was, it was a great time. Yeah, I was, I was in the crowd, and, I, and you're saying it's great to be here on the track. I think I shout out. Show us the line. <laughs> I was doing well, my best with my mini bike to keep I wouldn't up. be too good anymore. <laughs> well, you know, I really appreciate you taking time uh, to be with us. And I just, you know, I know a little bit about your post-race uh, story, too. And, I, you know, you're out serving people and, and serving the world. And really, you've leveraged all this into, into a lot of other things. And I just want to just thank you for, for being a champion in, on the course and off the course, too. Thank you very much. Yeah. I enjoyed yeah. it very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Can you get a quick picture? Sure. Yeah.